We live in a culture that's plagued by apathy, lukewarm devotion to Christ, faithlessness, no commitment to his word, and a mentality of scarcity, as Peter Greer would describe it. People, including Christians, don't care. Materialism dominates our culture. We take no risks for God. We aren't generous because we don't think we have enough for ourselves. And if you don't believe me, listen to a few statistics from the International Bulletin of Mission Research on uh, missionaries and missions and, and taking the gospel to parts of the world who have never heard it before. The proportion of long-term missionaries from the global north. Let me just describe the global north for a little bit. The global north would be the north of the 1040 window. It would be the, the countries who have the highest socioeconomic status and capability, the wealthy countries, global north, global south, typically third world countries. Long-term missionaries in 2021, there were a total of 430,000 missionaries sent from the global north. There's, a, there's been a decline. There's been only 53% of the total, 430,000, so there were 227,000 sent in 2021. 53% of the total were sent, which is down from 88% of the total missionaries sent in 1970, okay? So only 53% of the total missionaries were sent from the global north. The number of missionaries from the global south, okay, these are the poor third world countries, is actually on the rise. Uh, 47% of total missionaries from the global south, it's up from 12% in 1970. So you've got this uh, inversion that's happening. More missionaries coming from poorer countries than missionaries coming from the richer countries. And we can attest to this at the Master's Seminary. Uh, this spring, we're anticipating the highest enrollment of international students that we've ever had. And if you were to look at the list of countries that these men are coming from, they are global South countries, uh, third world countries. Those men are coming here to the Master's Seminary to get theological training to go back to their countries to train more pastors. If you've never seen the Joshua Project website, I would encourage, would encourage you to go there. Uh, according to the Joshua Project, there are 17,400 people groups. 7,400 of those have never heard the gospel. 3.3 billion people have never heard the gospel. So you ask the question, why so many unreached? Well, over 90% of missionaries work in already reached locations. Less than between 3 and 10% of missionary workers work in unreached locations. Uh, areas of the world, and missions agencies and churches send less than 1% of their missionaries to the unreached. Globally, 95% of pastors lack theological training, which, again, was why I believe our philosophy of missions here at Grace Church, TMAI, TMS, is so important. We bring national pastors here. We train them to go back, start training centers, to train their own people, take the gospel to their own people. Uh, let's talk about giving a little bit. And here's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm just setting us up for uh, where we are relative to where a man like William Borden was. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to set us up here a little bit. 76% of churchgoers have either never heard of the Great Commission or they don't know what it means. Christians receive 53% of the world's annual income and spend 98% of it on themselves. Only 10 to 25% of normal congregations tithe. So if we were to apply that statistic in this room, let's say there's a couple hundred people, 10% of this room tithing on a regular basis. 
I'm not saying that's true in Grace Church. Christians on average give 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. $17 a week is the average <clears throat> given by adults who attend Protestant churches. A cookie butter latte at Coffee Bean costs $4.80. And I can neither confirm nor deny why I would know that price <laughs> or why co Coffee Bean has cookie butter lattes. But Christians spend more money in the Starbucks drive through than we do supporting our local church. 37% of regular church attendees do not give. 17% of American families have reduced the amount they give. 7% of regular church attendees have dropped their giving by 20% or more. And 77, this is an interesting one, 77% of those who tithe give closer to 20% of their income. So people who say that they tithe are actually giving closer to 20% of their income. 30% of annual giving occurs in December, and the average donor supports four and a half charities. North Americans spend, I thought this was interesting, North Americans spend the same on Halloween costumes for pets as they do on outreach for the unreached people groups of the world. And then it's estimated that $53 billion annually is embezzled by custodians of Christian churches and ministries, more than the amount spent on global missions altogether. So, as I said earlier, we live in a culture of materialism, apathy, and self-centeredness. But you know who wasn't? Uh, William Borden. And we're going to learn about him this morning. He was a man who was passionate, on fire for Christ, full of faith, and who gave generously because he lived with a mentality of abundance. He had a burning anguish in his soul to see the lost converted, and he sacrificed everything to take the gospel to those who had never heard it before. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're, and you're thinking, well, I, I give and I have a heart for the lost and uh, this does not describe me. Uh, so here's a, here's a pop quiz. And I was going to give you a biography if you could answer this. I don't have it. Um, without cheating, uh, what grace missionary families highlighted in the grace today, this morning? Right here. Browns. But you, you, you work for GMI. Your husband works for GMI. Okay, no, that's good. That's good. Uh, okay, let me ask you this. Here's another one. How much money was given to Faith Promise last week? Okay, here's my point. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I am kind of. Uh, in that, I'm just trying to challenge our thinking and understanding. We say we have a heart for the lost and we're committed to missions, and we're committed to generosity, uh, that should compel us as uh, our fellowship group, as Grace Church, to be more involved in the lives of our missionaries, okay? Um, I'll give you a biography next week, okay? Uh, so what I'm going to do this morning, I, I've, n I've never done this before, so I, I hope this works. Um, as I said, uh, Mrs. Howard Taylor was married to Hudson Taylor's son, uh, if, you, if you have read uh, Hudson, The Spiritual Secret of Hudson Taylor, that was written by her, okay? She wrote a number of missionary biographies. She was actively involved in missions in China. She worked for China Inland Mission. She wrote this biography. And the way that she wrote it, she took all of the letters that uh, William Borden wrote to his mom, uh, to friends, family, and she compiled those into a story to account for his life. How many, I'm just curious, how many of you prior to this morning had ever, have ever heard of the name William Borden? 
A few, okay. Who can, uh, what, what, you guys, anybody want to tell me, can you t- tell me a little bit about him? Do you know anything about him? Right here. Okay, he did die young. What else? Okay, so not, not a lot. And that's, I think that's the point. You know, if I said Hudson Taylor, of course, everybody would raise their hand. Um, and I think William Borden is kind of an unsung hero. He did die young, um, and that's part of the intrigue of his story. So uh, William Borden was born in Chicago. I'm going to try and not bore you with quotes, but you have to hear some of the letters that he wrote in order to capture his heart uh, for God's word, his love for Christ, his love for missions, his heart for the lost, okay? Uh, but I'll do my best to try and keep this interesting. William Borden was born in Chicago on November 1st, 19, 1887, the third of four children to a wealthy silver magnate and landowner. He came from a long line of devout Puritan ancestors who loved God and his word. Now, a note here real quick. Uh, if you look up William Borden and you listen to teaching about his life, there are those who make the mistake that he was heir to the fortune of the Borden Dairy. He was not. That's not accurate. So if you read online, there are some prominent ministries who talk about William Borden, and they say he was heir to a $2 billion uh, Borden Dairy family. That's not accurate, okay? And I'll prove to you why when we get to the end of it. Uh, When he was seven years old, his mother Mary had a radical transformation in her life while attending Chicago Avenue, which is now Moody Church, and it was her desire to raise her children in the church. On one occasion when his mom was teaching them the Bible, she asked each child to take a slip of paper and write down what they wanted to be when they grew up. William at age six wrote this. He said, I want to be an honest man when I grow up and true and loving and kind and faithful man. And it was said of him later that the man could have looked into the eyes of the child without shame because that's exactly how he grew up. At age seven, uh, he was sitting with his mother in the pew, and his pastor was uh, Dr. R.A. Torrey. You might recognize that name. I'll talk about him in a little bit. Uh, he's sitting in the pew with his mom. His mom uh, is passing the communion tray, and she says to him, It is not time that you were thinking about this yourself, William. And he said, I have been. And this was an unexpected reply to his mom. Dr. Torrey later gave them an opportunity to come forward. And he came forward, uh, standing in his little blue sailor suit. He stood there for the entire morning, no wavering. And it was said of him that it was a consecration from which he never drew back. So he committed his life to Christ at age seven by the invitation of Dr. R.A. Torrey, who was his pastor. Dependence on prayer and love for the Bible marked his life. And Borden loved his church. And he spoke often of the impact it had on his early spiritual life. Now, uh, Borden also loved his mom. And one of the things when you read his biography, it's, it's unmistakably clear that he had a deep affection for his mom. There's stories of him where his mom would be in her, her room studying and, and he would sneak up behind her and kind of move her hair and give her a kiss on the cheek and then he would run away. And he just had, he had an affection uh, for his mom. He wrote, her, he wrote her a letter when he was little for her birthday. He said, Dear Mama, I did not have anything to give you on your birthday. I'm very sorry that I did not have anything for you. So I gave you a bunch of flowers in this letter. Goodbye from William. And after his father passed away, uh, his mother noted to friends that he wrote to her every day and became more like a husband to her than a son. Uh, Not much is written about William's relationship to his father, but he did have a good relationship with his father. 
Uh, In their father, the children had an understanding friend, it was said. He was a man of few words, but the intimacies of home life revealed the strength and nobility of his character. Uh, As a young boy, William attended the university school, Manual Training School of Chicago, and a preparatory school called the Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, which is still in existence today. After graduating prep school at the age of 16, now think about this for a minute. Uh, I was talking to the kids this morning at breakfast about this. His parents gave him a birthday present. They gave him a gap year. They wanted him to travel around the world for a year before enrolling at Yale, and they let him choose a family friend who was a former missionary to Korea by the name of Walter Erdman to be his companion. So just think about this for a minute. 16 years old, uh, how many of you moms and dads would let your teenager at age 16 uh, put them on a ship and let them sail around the world for a year? I asked Hallie this morning, Hallie turns 16 next year, and I said, Hallie, what would you think about, you know, doing this? And I don't know, what'd you say, Hallie? You're like, sounds good or, or yeah, you, you seemed open to it, which I was surprised. And then Trisha was looking at her like, no, no way. There's no, there's no way that would happen. So William Borden, at the age of 16, gets on the SS Korea in San Francisco and boards a ship to travel all around the world. Takes an entire year doing it. Uh, Their journey took them through the Hawaiian Islands, Pacific Ocean, Japan. And every one of these locations he visits, he writes a letter from those locations back to his parents describing it. And that's what I mean. You can't can't really get into his mind unless you read the biography and read the, the letters that he wrote back to his parents. But what was striking about it, and I think what's notable about his life, is at the age of 16, uh, when he's in Japan, he writes to his mom. Actually, he had turned by this time, he had turned 17, so he's 17 now. He writes to his mom from Japan commenting on the heathenism that he's seeing in the world. And he says this. He says, I received your birthday note with all the others which was a very pleasant surprise. Your request that I pray to God for his very best plan for my life is not a hard thing to do, for I've been praying that very thing for a long time. Although I've never thought very seriously about being a missionary until lately. I was somewhat interested in that line, as you know. I think this trip is going to be a great help in showing things to me in a new light. I can't explain what my views were, but I met such a pleasant young people in in the steamer who were going out as missionaries and meeting them influenced me. When I look ahead a few years, it seems as though the only thing to do is prepare for the foreign field. Of course, I want a college course and then perhaps some medical study and certainly Bible study at Moody Institute, perhaps. I may be a little premature, but I'm beginning to think a little different. I don't know what you'll think of this, but anyway, I know you can help me with lots of love, William. So you start to see his heart for the lost early on as a 17-year-old. He's seeing Japan. He's seeing the heathenism in Japan. He's seeing uh, idolatry and false worship in the temples. From Japan, they travel to Hong Kong, Shanghai, Thailand, Malaysia, South India, Sri Lanka, Calcutta. They go to the border of Nepal and the Himalayas where uh, Howard Taylor writes, all around them, the Darjeeling were touching evidences of the unsatisfied longing of hearts that searched in vain for comfort amid life's mysteries. So every one of his letters, he's writing home burdened for the lost at age 17. Um, it's, it's incredible to think about. From there, he goes to India. And then I'll read another letter here that he wrote from India because India was probably, had the, had, had the most impact on his life. 
the, the, the worship of false gods in India kind of rocked his world. And he writes home uh, February 26, 1905. He says, I pray every day for all my dear family. I also pray that God will take my life into his hands and use it for the furtherance of his kingdom as he sees best. I feel sure that he will answer my prayer. It strengthens me to know that you are also praying for this. I have so much of everything in this life, and there are so many millions who have nothing and live in darkness. I don't think it's possible to realize until one sees the east. I know it is no easy thing to serve the Lord, but others have been able to do it, and there is no reason why I should not. And then he ends with Mark 10, 27, the context of the rich young ruler saying, looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but with God for all things are possible. From India, he travels down to Mumbai, goes to Egypt, Palestine, Turkey, Greece. And then in Italy is where he, uh, he runs into an American girl that he hadn't seen. He hadn't seen an American girl in quite some time. And this is what he writes. Uh, I think I would like to come here on my wedding trip if I ever have one. I've only met three American girls on our whole trip until now. There's nothing like a real, true American girl. French, German, English, or Irish aren't in it. I love it. Aren't in it. It's like the new, uh, the new slang now, like, like Poland. Poland, you know, somebody's Poland. Like he says, they aren't in it. The French, the English, the Irish, they aren't in it. Nothing like a true American girl. He's right. There's nothing like a true American girl. (laughs) Yet in the midst of all the joyful travels in Europe, he wrote to his mom, Darling mother, I'm glad that you have told father about my desire to be a missionary. I'm thinking about it all the time and looking forward to it with a good deal of anticipation. I know that I'm not at all fitted or prepared yet, but in the next four or five years, I ought to be able to prepare myself. I've been reading Mr. Spears' book on missionary principles and practice. It's very good, in my opinion. It takes up the different kinds of missionary work, educational, medical, and evangelistic, and discusses them with regard to the different countries. You may have read it, and if you haven't, I think you would like it. I don't think I want to go through a seminary, but thorough Bible study is what I do need, as Dr. Torrey says. It's much more important and profitable to know what God has to say on a subject than what men have to say. I would like some medical skill enough so as to not be absolutely helpless and ignorant, but I really oughtn't to try and form plans of my own, but let God do it for me, and then it's sure to be right. I will be mighty glad when I can talk things over with you. Lots and lots of love, William. And he goes on to describe how this book by a guy named Robert Elliot Spear had a tremendous impact on his life. Uh, Spear wrote a number of books on at the time, what was called the student volunteer movement. And if you've heard of the student volunteer movement in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, the student volunteer movement was instrumental in sending almost 20,000 college missionaries all over the world. In fact, uh, <clears throat> it, was, it was said one in 37 uh, college students had made a commitment to go to the foreign mission field through the student volunteer movement. And I just, I was thinking about that in context of our fellowship group, our college ministries. I mean, imagine if uh, one in 37 students on the campus of UCLA said, I want to go be a foreign missionary. There was a major revival that happened in the early 1900s that led to college students being sent all over the world. And now, of course, we have ministries like Campus Crusade and Youth for Christ and all of those. But I, I think those ministries pale in comparison to what the student volunteer movement did. Anyway, he's writing to his mom about uh, this Mr. Spear who had uh, written about the evangeliz- evangelization of the world in this generation. 
and he was so impacted by it, he just wrote his mom and said, listen, I think what he's saying is true. I think we could evangelize the entire world in my generation. He says, when I got through reading, I knelt right down and prayed more earnestly than I have for some time for the mission work and for God's plan for my life and also for his plan for the lives of every one of my family. Oh, mother, do pray for me. College is so near and there will be such a lot of things to do, tremendous opportunities. I pray that I might be guided in every small and great thing. From Italy, he went to Switzerland, went hiking in the Alps writes home talking about what the Alps were like and the excursions in the Alps. From Switzerland, he goes to England, and then England, he'll go home. But while he's in England, 17 years old, Friday, July 7th, 1905, uh, his pastor, Ari Torrey, who was his pastor back home at Moody Church in Chicago, is doing a five-month revival tour through uh, Europe, and his pastor, Ari Torrey, is in England. Uh, so he and his friend, Walt Eerdman, decide, hey, we're going to go listen to our pastor. It would you know, sort of be the equivalent of, of Pastor John uh, speaking at a church overseas or in Europe and you know, people from Grace Church going to listen to him preach or them being over there and they get to listen to him preach. Uh, I think about the families who, you know, when, he, when, he, when he spoke in uh, Kentucky last year at the, uh, at the Ark Encounter, how many families from Grace Church actually went out and got to hear him preach. Uh, that's what this was for uh, William Borden. His pastor, R.A. Torrey, was there. Uh, he says, Dr. Torrey, as you know, has been holding meetings here in London for five months. This last month or so, they have been in a specially constructed hall on the Strand, seating about 5,000. Sunday was the last of these meetings. Walt and I went in the afternoon. The hall was by no means full, but there were 1,500, I guess. I was reminded, I was thinking about the Ligonier Conference back in March of 2021, where Pastor John went out and spoke. Uh, he, he preached on Isaiah 6 in honor of R.C. Sproul. If you haven't watched the video from the March 2021 Ligonier Conference, uh, you have to do it. Pastor John, this is right after COVID or kind of right in the middle of COVID. Pastor John gets up on the stage in this massive auditorium and everybody stands up and there's a, a, an eruption of applause for him. And he has, he has this, uh, this great line. He says, well, there, there went my eternal reward. Uh, for getting this round of applause. But it just reminded me of, you know, you think about William Borden and Walter knowing that their pastor's there. Hey, we need to go listen to him. Uh, a couple notes about R.A. Torrey, and this does connect to Pastor John, and I think this is just a little bit of an interesting side note. Um, R.A. Torrey graduated Yale Divinity in 1889, so just after William Borden was born. Uh, he became the pastor at Moody Church in Chicago in 1894, and then from 1902 to 1905 is when he did this revival. So he was in England. But here's what's more interesting. Uh, 1912, R.A. Torrey get, gets asked to move out to California to start what is now Biola, uh, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And he was instrumental in the founding of Biola, uh, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which also housed uh, Church of the Open Door. So if you've heard of J. Vernon McGee, um, if you have ever driven downtown and gone by the, um, uh, the Ace Hotel and it has the big red sign that says Jesus Saves on it, you guys know what I'm talking about? Well, G that Jesus Saves sign used to be on the Church of the Open Door in downtown Los Angeles that R.A. Torrey founded. So R.A. Torrey was instrumental in Biola. He was instrumental in Church of the Open Door. And then obviously out of Biola came Talbot Theological Seminary, which our pastor is a graduate of. And interestingly enough, I, I, as I was kind of digging into it, 
Uh, similar to what William Borden will later go on to do for Princeton, Pastor John did for Talbot. He was a faculty representative for Talbot. He traveled all over the country representing Talbot uh, before taking the pastor at a Grace Community Church in 1969. So next time you drive by the Jesus Save sign downtown, be reminded of its connection all the way back to R.A. Torrey and then R.A. Torrey's influence on William Borden and sort of indirectly our, our own pastor. Okay. Uh, March. Oh, let's see. That, that was uh, that was a different note. Um, oh yeah, he, he talks about how uh, Dr. Tory was talking about being born again. Uh, he gave five proofs uh, that were very convincing and plain. He says he and Walt went back for the evening session and he gave a talk on the way of life. He said, uh, one, look always to Jesus. Two, keep confessing Jesus everywhere. Three, keep studying God's word. Four, keep praying every day. And five, go to work. And he writes home to his mom. Mom, the first I'm doing, the first four I'm doing, and the fifth I will do. Well, when I got home that night, I felt there was a difference. You know the expression, for heaven's sake? That I abused so much. I knew it was wrong. And yet I couldn't stop it. Before last Sunday, I had been praying about it, but not very earnestly, I'm afraid. His conscience was so sensitive that using that phrase, for heaven's sake, he was so bothered by it. There's probably some of us in this room who use phrases either in our mind or come out of our mouth that are far worse than that. Uh, He says, before last Sunday, I had been praying about it, but not very earnestly, I'm afraid. For though I managed to keep it from my lips, it got started several times. That night, I prayed not only that my life might be controlled, but my thoughts also, and I meant it. I expected a direct answer, and I got it the next day, and I've been kept in that matter ever since. I don't think I ever had any real definite experience like that before, and it has strengthened my faith, and now I'm praying more earnestly about things for which I've been praying some time. You won't be able to get an answer to me about all of this, but we'll talk things over when I arrive. And then he talks about that night, how he'd had this experience. He's walking along the Strand in London, and there's this outdoor meeting, and he runs into a young guy there and shares his faith with this guy. This guy rejects the gospel. He says, hey, can I have your address? I want to come see you the next day. The guy gives him a fake address. He goes, spends the next day hunting for this guy and could never find him. But here's the point. The point is, this experience in London with his pastor, R.A. Torrey, uh, was, was instrumental in giving him a burden for the gospel. So that when he gets home and starts uh, his freshman year at Yale, he had a singular focus to be a blessing, to be committed to God's word, and to do what God wanted him to do. Uh, at Yale, he's 17 years old. He was there from 1905, 1909. Uh, he entered in the fall of 1905. At once, he became a positive factor in the religious life of the institution. He was an active athlete, good boxer, good tennis player, yachtsman, and became very fond of mountain climbing. At the same time, he maintained a standard of scholarship He writes home to his mom. He says, uh, nearly everyone uses a translation in his studies. The great majority smoke, go to theater Saturday night, and do their studying on Sunday. Rather a hopeless state of affairs, he says. However, there are some fine Christian men in college, and in my own class too, I believe, and I hope to be able to do something by the grace of God to help in the right direction. William Borden was committed to honoring the Lord in his studies, his relationships, his involvement on campus. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 119. Uh, this, is, this, is where, this is where we're going to open our, our Bibles. 
Um, and the reason I want, I want to read uh, the first 11 verses is because Psalm 119 was impactful for William Borden. Psalm 119, verse 1, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commands. Verse 7, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. And then verse 9, and this was a, this was a verse that he had hanging on his dorm room in Yale. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? And then in verse 11, he kept this in a flyleaf in his pocket. Uh, verse 10, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. He had strong convictions. He had a commitment to God's word. He had a desire when he read his letters. All he wanted to do was be obedient. All he wanted to do was be a blessing to his classmates. But he also didn't like bad preaching either. Uh, he writes home to his mom November 12th. Doctor, he didn't even say his name. It's just a blank. Dr. Blank has been here for the last two Sundays, preaching in chapel and talking in Dwight Hall in the evenings. He makes me tired. He's so smooth and subtle and pleasing to everyone. His talks are interesting in a way, but what he says merely amounts to human ethics. He takes text simply, quote, as pegs to hang his own thoughts on, end quote. And there's a number of letters he writes home. Anytime there was somebody that came to chapel and was a terrible preacher, he would write home to his mom and say, oh man, this guy was awful. Uh, Taylor briefly describes the friendship between William and Charlie Campbell, a friendship that would last his entire life. So Charlie Campbell was, became his best friend. He met him his freshman year at Yale, and he would be his friend all through his entire career, Yale, Princeton, when he traveled for student volunteer movement. Uh, I, won't, I won't read the quote, but Charlie said he knew, he knew William Borden was the real deal. William Borden lived in the, the nice uh, part of Yale, the nice student housing, I think UCLA has this, right? UCLA has like the nice housing and then kind of the dumpy housing for the lower income students. What was that way at Yale? Uh, William Borden lived in the nice part of the student housing and Charlie Campbell lived on the fifth floor of the worst dorm in Yale. And Charlie Campbell said he knew William Borden was going to be one of his good friends when he invited him over and William would always walk all the way up to the fifth floor, walk up the stairs to the fifth floor with him and he never complained about it. He was always eager to do it. And he was always eager to spend more time with Charlie than he was in his own kind of fancy dorm in Yale. Charlie and William, their freshman year, started a prayer group. So William went to Charlie and said, hey, let's get together and let's start praying before breakfast every morning. And what started with Charlie and William turned into three guys and then turned into four guys and then they started these prayer groups with all of the schools at Yale. And by the end of his senior year at Yale, of the 1,300 students that were at Yale, there were 1,000 students meeting every single morning for prayer because uh, William and Charlie got together and said, hey, let's just start praying together before breakfast. Let's pray for the student body. Let's pray for one another. Uh, Charlie wrote this about William. He said, his life was determined. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find him a strength that was as solid as a rock just because of his settled purpose and consecration. 17 years old. Um, I mean, I think about the 
college kids at TMU. I think about our Christian students at UCLA, uh, USC, CSUN. How many 17-year-olds do you know uh, that you could put in this category? Like, where, where, are the, where are the William Bordens of today? That's the question you have to ask yourself. And maybe you're, you're here. You're one of those students. Like, what are you doing in your life to be the William Borden? What are we doing to be the William Bordens? Um, he talks about an event. This was kind of a highlight of his time at Yale. He was asked to represent Yale at a student volunteer conference in Nashville in 1906. And this is where he's introduced to Samuel Zwemer. Uh, if you know the name Samuel Zwemer, he's called the Apostle to Islam. Um, Samuel Zwemer was preaching at a student volunteer uh, conference in Nashville. William Borden goes down to Nashville his freshman year with some delegates from the school. And he talks about all these speakers, but he said there was one man. He was a man with a map, charged with facts and with enthusiasm, grim with earnestness, filled with passion of love for Christ and perishing. Samuel Zwemer made that great map live, voicing the silent appeal of the Mohammedan world. I want to read some of of just a portion of Zwemer's sermon at that uh, meeting. We do have some Samuel Zwemers today. I'm going to talk about two of them. Zwemer says this. Nashville, 1906. We ought to press in, sacrificing our lives if need be for God as the Muslims did at Cardam for their prophet. If the call voiced by those who have already spoken moved us deeply, coming from Persia, from Turkey, from Egypt, from India, if that was a call from God, what shall be said of the mute appeal of the 70 million of the wholly unevangelized Muslim world? Shall we stand by and allow these 70 million to continue under the curse And in the snare of the false religion, with no knowledge of the saving love and power of Christ, not because they have proved fanatical and refused to listen, not because they have thrust us back, but because none of us have ever had the courage to go to those lands and win them to Christ. Of course it will cost life. It's not an expedition of ease nor a picnic excursion to which we are called. It's going to cost many a life. And not lives only, but prayers and tears and blood. Leadership in this movement has always been a leadership in suffering. There was Raymond Lowell, the first missionary to the Muslims, stoned to death in Algiers. Henry Martin, pioneering in Persia with the cry, let me burn out for God. We who are missionaries to Muslims today call upon you to follow with us in their train to go to these waiting lands and light the beacon of love of Christ in all the Mohammedan world. Did he not live, pray, suffer for Muslims as well as for us? Shall we do less if he called us to go? Let us be like those Scots of Bruce who are ready to falter until that man on the white charger took the heart of Bruce in its casket, swinging it around, cried out, O heart of Bruce, lead us on. As he flung it toward the enemy and bore down upon them, you could not have held those soldiers back with bands of steel. Say not is the appeal of the Mohammedan world or of the missionaries. It is the call of the master. Let us answer with a shout, O heart of Christ, lead on, and we will follow that cry and win the Mohammedan world for him. We don't plead for missions. We simply bring the facts before you and ask for a verdict. So Zwimmer is on fire preaching to these college students. William Borden is sitting there feeling convicted and compelled, and he says, I have to go. I have to go take the gospel to the unreached Muslims of China. Now, we do have some uh, Samuel Zwemers here. Um, I can't say his name, 
because I can't. But he's a missionary from Grace Church. And there's a legend uh, that when he was in seminary, and he, he spent a majority of his ministry serving in Muslim parts of the world. Uh, there's a legend. I've asked him about this. He said it's not true, but it's a legend, so I'm going to say it anyway. When he was in chapel, uh, somebody came to the master seminary and said, if you're willing to go, we will pay for you to go. And the legend is that he stood up in chapel and said, I'm going to break the back of Islam. Now, he says he never said that. But if you talk to him or hear him preach or look at his ministry website, spend time with him, he has a singular focus to see the Muslim world saved for Christ. We have another Samuel Zwemer, and he's going to be here in June at a missionary conference. His name's Brad Buser. Uh, Brad Buser was a missionary in Papua New Guinea, uh, planted a church in Papua New Guinea, and has spent the rest of his life being a representative for uh, new tribes and now for a ministry called Radius. They're going to be here doing a missionary conference in June. And just a quick story about Brad Buser. When Trisha and I were at our church back home in Idaho, we were kind of overseeing the youth program. We would go up to this uh, camp in the summertime with all these kids. And one summer, we invited Brad to come. And Brad preached on missions. And right now, to this day, the sister of Chloe and Hannah is serving as a missionary in Ukraine, partly because of the influence of that summer camp from Brad Buser. Uh, when she was in high school. Now, their parents were not happy about it when Brad Beezer came to that summer camp. I got an earful from Mrs. Fuller about that. But here's my point. There are Samuel Zwemers today who spend their entire life in ministry calling people to the mission field. And that's what it was for uh, William Borden, Samuel Zwemer. Uh, just for the sake of time, uh, I'm, I'm gonna kind of jump through some more of this. His father passed away during his freshman year, and he would write his mother every single day, April 21st, 1906. He says, I haven't much to tell you this evening, but just thought I would write a little note to send you my love. The weather continues pleasant. I can literally see the leaves grow from day to day. I'll try and write often, but don't you try to. He wrote her on April 24th, 28th, May 3rd, May 4th, May 5th, May 9th, May 12th, May 13th, May 15th, May 17th, May 21st, May 23rd, May 24th, May 25th. He was doing all this while studying at Yale, representing student volunteer movement, doing Bible studies on campus. He took time every single day to write his mom a letter. Guys, I don't know if there's guys in here, go home today and write your mom a letter. Don't text her. Don't do anything. Just sit down and write your mom a letter and just tell her you love her, okay? Moms, you have no idea how valuable the support a mother can be for a son. His, you'll see later, his mom was instrumental in his life. I love this one, though. May 28th writes about a friend who's dating a wild girl, he said. His father would be dumbfounded. He was a Presbyterian elder, and this was a friend of his, and he's saying, Mom, he's dating a wild girl. It's not going to go well for him. Um, I'm going I'm to skip over some of this because we're running out of time. His sophomore year, uh, some of the highlights for the sophomore year, probably the biggest one. After his father passed away, he inherited the family fortune, and you know, some people estimate that it was in the tens of millions. Uh, it was at least several million. He inherits the family fortune from his dad. And during his time in college, rather than take that money and use it for his own good, he actually starts giving it away. And during his sophomore year at Yale, he and some friends got together, start praying and say, hey, let's start a uh, homeless shelter for the homeless people of New Haven. 
and he took the money that he got from his family's fortune and built a homeless shelter uh, at Yale called the Yale Hope Mission. Um, One of his professors wrote this, it's my firm conviction that Yale Hope Mission has done more to convince all classes of men at Yale of the power and practicability of Christianity to regenerate individuals' communities than any other force in the university. Its influence of good among the students is inestimable. And there's all these letters of these guys, these bums that, that William, they'd be on the street drunk and William would put his arm around him and say, come on in. And he would feed them and he would share the gospel with them. And there's all these letters from these men who were impacted by him. Um, after he graduated Yale, he went to Princeton uh, Seminary. He wanted to go to the mission field. He'd actually applied to China Inland Missions and they turned him down. They said, no, we want you to get more training. So he goes to Princeton, studies at Princeton for three years. There he was a delegate to the student volunteer movement. He traveled all over, uh, speaking at colleges and universities, trying to challenge students. Um, he served as the, he was a trustee of the Moody Bible Institute. He was the, the director of the National Bible Institute. He was an active member of the American Committee of Nile Missions Press. Uh, he was actively serving in the Yale Hope Mission. And then in September of 1912, after graduating from Princeton, he was ordained to the mission field by the elders of Moody Church. And the elders wrote, We set him apart for the work for which he was called. The hands of the lowly were laid upon his head. The Holy Spirit filled him. The grace of the omnipotent was in his life. And then his mother would write later that in spite of the physical weakness, in spite of how uh, scared she was for him to go, she said she was given strength so she was able to meet all the demands of the dreaded situation when it came with gladness. So his mom was in full support of him going. And I'm skipping over a lot here because time is not on our side right now. So he goes through Yale, has the, the, the experience in Nashville. He spends his time serving in Princeton. Uh, while he's in Princeton, most of his studies surround around studying Arabic. He had already decided back at the conference in Nashville that he was going to go to the, the unreached Muslims of the far western part of China. It was already in his heart. He knew where he wanted to go. Um, by this time, he gets approved by the China Inland Missions. They say, yes, you can go, and uh, he prepares. So he finishes his obligation with the student volunteer movement on December 10th, 1912. The SS Mauritania was sailing to Cairo on December 17th. And a number of his family and friends, if you read the letters, they were trying to encourage him to stay. Stay for Christmas. Go after Christmas. Stay here. Be with your mom. Be with your family. Some of his friends were even saying, don't go. Stay here. Run the family business. You can be a wealthy man. You can support ministry that way. Taylor notes that his mother never did anything to hold him back. And it says that he attended a friend's wedding that Sunday night before. They went to church together. They held a prayer meeting for the Muslims afterward. And his friend, Mr. Shelton, wrote, We prayed that our beloved friend might be kept in safety throughout his long journey and guided and upheld in all his ways. And then he prayed for us and for the work we represented. He was so strong, so vigorous in body and mind that night that we anticipated for him long and useful service. He gets on the boat. He goes to Cairo. He arrives in Port Said on January 1st, 1913, just after his mom had written him a Christmas letter that he got on his way there. She says, just one more word. I will never cease to be grateful for the rich blessing you have been to me, dear, a comfort and a strength all your years to your devoted mother. What a rich new year is unfolding before you. It was so beautiful having you with us in our little prayer circle. Just one more 
of loving touches of God has put these last days. His time in Cairo was relatively short. When he arrived, Samuel Zwemer was there to meet him. He immediately got to work. When he got there, he said, I want to reach Cairo for Christ. So he met with the people of the YMCA in Cairo. They created tracks, and they said, we're going to reach 800,000 people in Cairo. Zwemer says, when, we, when he lived in Cairo, he was a friend of the Coptic Christians, to the Armenian Christians. He was brother to the Armenian missionaries and to the British missionaries. And then while he was there, he also moved in with a Syrian family, the Hassouns, so that he could learn the language better. Kind of like what Josiah Grauman did when he wanted to learn Spanish. He moved in with the Rios family and happened to meet Crystal uh, before they went to the mission field. Kind of convenient. Uh, Mr., uh, Mr. Borden did not get married, though. <laughs> And I'm skipping over a lot of this because I, I ran out of time, but the Lord knows. The Lord knows. Um, a few weeks later, Good Friday. No, no, I got to go back here. Uh, early March, he'd written a friend about a, a doctor who was in uh, Cairo for the Missionary Society. He was attending a patient suffering from spinal meningitis, and the patient had coughed in his face. And with that came infection, and on the next Sunday, this doctor, Payne, was dead. A few weeks later, on Good Friday, March 21st, William Borden was taken ill. A telephone call from the Hassoun family came to say that Borden was sick. On Easter Sunday, he was taken to the hospital and diagnosed with spinal meningitis at the age of 25. Uh, they weren't able to tell his mom because she was actually on a ship sailing to Lebanon. She was going to meet him in Lebanon for the summer. His friend Charlie Campbell was back at Moody Church praying for him. Uh, Eerdman says, it's the strangest, most mysterious working of the divine providence I've ever experienced. The world had such need of William. People could not understand how he could get sick in Cairo. And then Borden and semi-consciousness kept saying, poor mother, poor mother. His work was so much on his heart that he talked about it deliriously. On the train ride back to Cairo, Mrs. Borden received the telegram that William had died. They arrived in Cairo at 1 p.m. He had died at 9 a.m. And I'm going to read uh, the inscription. So because he died of spinal meningitis, they had to bury him same day in Egypt. Uh, William Borden never made it to China. He spent three months in Cairo, gave his life to try to reach Cairo for the gospel, spreading tracks all over Cairo, contract spinal meningitis, and never made it. Now, there's a, several chapters in the biography, and we don't have time to look at them, but he subsequently gave away his entire fortune uh, in his will, several million dollars. And during his lifetime, the amount of money that he had when he inherited from his dad, he gave away to countless ministries. And there's a, a whole chapter on all of the ministries that he, that he had given to. But this is what's written on his gravestone, and we'll close with this because we're out of time. A man in Christ, he arose and forsook all and followed him, kindly affectioned with brotherly love, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity of saints and honoring, in honor preferring others. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And then it ends with this, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, newspapers all over the world printed the story of his life, and if we had more time, we could talk about some of the lessons. We don't. Uh, but I would say this about him. He lived with no reserves. He 
had no retreats in spite of all of the people who were trying to keep, let, make him stay and not go to the mission field. And he had no regrets at the end of his life when he died, knowing that he had given his life to Christ. Uh, I'll have biographies here next week. I'm sorry for taking uh, three minutes over. I'm going to pray, and then we'll let you guys go. Uh, God, you're good. Thanks for the life of William Borden. God, I pray that you would raise up William Borden's uh, this very day to take the gospel to those who have never heard it. We love you. We thank you for your generosity towards us in Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.